you and your brother. It was a natural instinct. You're farmers. Uh, you knew how to work with people, treat them as equals, get along with them, bring the best out of them. And I said, what that did was um, it created a very entrepreneurial kind of thinking. You gave people long leashes. You trusted them. You treated them with respect, with dignity. And people respond to that. And what they did was they responded in a way where they worked hard, they tried to be innovative and creative, and you encouraged them to be that. This is Canadian Market Watch, the podcast where your co-hosts, Jim Check and George Sanders, dive into the economy of Canada with industry experts. They cover mining, oil and gas, forestry, agriculture, manufacturing, and everything in between. Asking lots of questions, tough questions. If it's impacting the Canadian economy, they're talking about it. Welcome to another edition of Canadian Market Watch with Jim and George. Today we have a special guest. We have Nick Arkel from Gorman Group. Um, maybe uh, give us a little introduction into yourself, Nick, and uh, how long you've been in the Valley here working for Gorman Brothers. Yeah, well, I've lived in the Okanagan uh, since 1975, uh, which uh, many people would call me an old-timer. Um, I kind of consider myself being recent here because my, my children would be third or fourth generation uh, living in the Okanagan. Uh, my uh, wife's grandfather moved here. Her father was born here. She was born here. I married uh, her here, and then our kids were born here. So very much uh, the Okanagan is uh, a central part of our lives. So I'm currently the CEO of uh, the Gorman Group, as you identified. We are a multi-divisional company with a sawmill in Revelstoke, uh, a plywood operation just outside of Salmon Arm in Canoe, um, a small pole operation uh, producing utility poles just east of Vernon, uh, outside of Lumbee. Then what I would call the Homestead, which is uh, this mill here in West Kelowna. And then we have a remanufacturing plant that's actually also on a railhead, uh, a short line that goes from Oroville, just south of Soyuz, across in, into the U.S. border, across the U.S. border, and uh, it takes our product down to Wenatchee, which then ties in with the Burlington Northern Line and out to, to our market. So five divisions. Um, employing around 1,100 people uh, between those five divisions, uh, primarily into lumber products. Um, but as I mentioned, one of our operations being a plywood operation and another one being a small uh, pole division. So with the, the current COVID crisis, um, the lumber industry has seen some challenges, as everybody has, but the lumber industry has seen challenges for a long time now. Um, maybe you could speak a little bit to the history of 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 the challenges that you guys have faced and, and how this, this has actually amplified that. Yeah. The, the industry, as you know, is selling into a, a commodity world. Um, we actually are different to that. Now, if I have an opportunity, I'd like to describe that and explain it uh, later on. But the forest industry in general um, is a, a price taker. The market tells it uh, what it's going to pay for its product, and companies can uh, uh, be competitive by controlling their, their operating costs. Um, can they produce that product going into the quarry world? 
where the quality world tells them how much they're going to pay for it. Can we do it cheaper than the, the next mill down the road? Um, that's um, what drives them. And so they go through the volatility of the markets. Uh, when there's a shortage, obviously prices uh, go high. And when there's a surplus uh, or there's no demand, uh, then prices can plummet. And we've experienced that, as you point out, um, over the last couple of years. 2018 was probably the most volatile um, year that I recall in recent memory anyway. And that was where we just come off in BC, two bad years of forest fires. Uh, we had a major flooding uh, season, a very wet spring. In 2018, mills hadn't got enough logs in their yards, so mills were curtailing production because they just didn't have the raw fiber to turn into lumber. And then there was a, a rail problem um, early 2018 as well. So when product was wanting to get to market, it couldn't get there, and that drove prices up. And so lumber prices went from $400 plus US a uh, thousand board feet up to $655,000, uh, $655 a thousand board feet rapidly um, over a couple of months and then crashed below $300 cash US uh, by the end of the year. Extreme volatility. And really that was from a response to a sugar high. Um, it probably should never have gone as high as they did. And then, of course, when you have the sugar highs, uh, there can be a deep crash afterwards. And that's what we experienced in 2018. And then since then, we've seen... Um, Volatility, but nowhere near as extreme uh, as we saw in that year. But then, of course, uh, what we've seen recently is that with um, housing starts plummeting, uh, people pretty well going into lockdown, uh, prices have uh, plummeted again. And so it, it seemed like coming after one shock, uh, we just entered straight into another shock. Now, I did say earlier that we're somewhat different at our company. Um, we don't produce commodity products. Uh, we actually produce a high-value product going into a high-cost value as well. It costs a lot to produce what we uh, what we make, um, but it goes into the home finishing renovation market, so it really is a repair and remodeling. This is a product that is the classic. You go to the do-it-yourself store, and you walk out with your lumber thrown over your shoulder and put it in the back of the car, drive home, and finish off that project at your house. So our product goes into the um, finishing of a house or um, the repair of a house. And so we used to think we were somewhat, somewhat recession resistant, that if people weren't building houses, they were renovating them. Um, on the other hand, if they were bit, uh, building houses, they were finishing them. And so our market didn't get hit as hard as the others. So we didn't see the same highs, we didn't see the same lows, and more stable. But as a general rule, the industry is one that goes through the commodity cycles, um, like uh, like many other commodity businesses, and especially those associated with the resource industries. Sure. So, um, would would you say that sounds like in 2018, with that price spike, that it was a supply shortage driven? in that uh, the climate and the rail uh, issue affected it. Um, but would you say that the the price for lumber, is it mostly contingent on U.S. housing or are overseas markets very involved in the mechanism as well? It, it's all of the above. Uh, I know that with uh, the commodity guys, um, the U.S. market has always been critical, um, but China has also become more significant to them as well. And when one isn't doing as well, the other one 
um, sometimes is. And so that's been a balancing influence. Now, what you've had recently is that both those markets have been hit. And so that's, uh, um, that's what's had a, a huge impact on, um, on, on the industry. Now, with us, uh, we actually have diversified our markets considerably. And part of that is driven by the, the trade disputes we've had with the U.S., uh, as you may be aware, uh, right now we're in a, a disagreement, as I call it, uh, with the U.S. It's not a trade war. It's a trade dispute. Um, it does have processes and in place and appeal processes in place. But at the end of the day, we're paying a 20% duty um, on a lumber going across the border. And we've gone through these cycles before. Uh, just in my time uh, working this company, we've been through three of these and uh, every time they follow a very similar pattern, but every time we realize that we've got to diversify ourselves even more. Um, and an example of that, of that would be uh, back in 2006, uh, we would be selling into, we were selling into seven different countries around the world. In the U.S. was 80% of our uh, market. Um, in 2006, uh, we'd just come out of another uh, dispute and we it dropped to 62% in the U.S., and we were selling into 15 countries around the world. In 2019, um, just after the last dispute, uh, the last agreement came to an end and we entered into a new dispute, uh, we are only 50% into the U.S. today and selling into 30 different countries around the world. So we've diversified, and I would suggest that the commodity world doesn't have the ability to, to diversify quite to the extreme that we do because of the different products they're producing, but they have certainly uh, diversified. But the U.S. is still uh, a critical part. They need our lumber uh, probably more than they recognize it. And uh, so when the market picks up in the U.S., uh, Canadian it's a good destination for Canadian lumber. Nick, on the, on the American side of the dispute, what are the key issues that prompt them to put those tariffs in place? Uh, there's, a, there's a couple of things, and the two that you hear about is countervail duty and anti-dumping. The countervail duty is very much an argument around subsidy. Uh, they believe that we don't have a market-driven pricing system um, that they have in the U.S. Now, there's many arguments to, to uh, point out that that's not the case. We, we have auction-based systems, and those auction-based systems actually do represent a, a market-driven system uh, because Secretary and BC, um, our auction-based system um, drives this stumpage or the royalty that we then pay to the Crown um, on all the other wood uh, that we bring into our mills uh, from Crown land. Uh, but that hasn't been an argument that the Americans have accepted. So one side of it is the countervail duty. The other one is anti-dumping. And that is, uh, they argue that we're sending lumber across the border for less than the cost of production. It, it, it's a little bit more... Um, complex than that, but that's the gist of the argument is that you're dumping product for less than the cost of production and therefore it's dumping and therefore it's unfair. It's an unfair practice. So those are the two uh, main arguments. And the two main arguments that have been around for a long time. I remember many years ago I was down in Victoria and I was reading the Victoria um, Times Colonist 
and it we had an editorial, and the editorial was talking about you know the trade dispute going on with the U.S. Um, it's around dumping, it's around uh, subsidized uh, lumber going into mills, and this is outrageous, and uh, you know, this is so from an American perspective. And then, so the, the editorial was responding to this, and then at the bottom of it said, "This is from the Times colonist, and it was in the late 1800s." <laughs> so this is a dispute that has been around for a long time, um, and the story pretty well stays the same, and it follows a very similar uh, process almost every time. So what would you say, uh, just a little bit of color to that uh, U.S. position, what would you say is the state of the uh, primary U.S forest harvest business, and then what you guys do, the the, the yeah. next level of treatment, milling, et cetera. Are, well, are, are they not competitive? Or uh, I'm trying to get a handle on yeah. why the U.S. might feel that uh, we're, we're undermining their own industry. Yeah, the the I've been to some mills in the U.S. and they're very modern mills. Uh, I, I was always told that they weren't as competitive as we are. Uh, and then when I went down there, I started looking at some of them. I realized that's an oversimplification. Um, it's not that easy uh, a response. The big difference, and this really is a significant difference between the U.S. and Canada, is that you know, take British Columbia. It's 50% of the lumber that goes down to the U.S. comes out of this province. We are really the, the forest industry driver uh, for products going across the border. Um, we are uh, you know, 90% plus owned by the public. It's publicly owned land. And so the province has a responsibility to manage the land, um, get the value and benefits from that land, and then return it to the people who own it. In the U.S., it's almost uh, completely the opposite. It's uh, the vast majority of land down there is privately owned. And uh, and I would even argue that a lot of this trade dispute is actually driven by the landowners um, because if they can limit the supply of lumber coming down from Canada, that increases the, the value of lumber south of the border, which in turn increases the value of the trees sitting on that land, which in turn increases the value of the land itself. And so it really is a, a fundamental difference in how we see land ownership. Here it's publicly owned, south of the border it's privately owned. Yeah, that's that's an uh, an important designation, and and um, I, I I think you know my immediate response to hearing that is uh, not necessarily agreeing with the American position, but I can certainly see why they would hold that position. Nick, can you give us a lay of the land for British Columbia? Because BC has seen a lot of closures. What, like 30 years ago, how many mills were there? How many people employed in the industry? And what do we have now? And what are, do you think the main reasons for the closure? Is it being outdated equipment or outdated mills not being competitive? Or is it more about the U.S. thing? Yeah, the, the biggest change and in, in the number of years I've been in this industry, so since 1975 to now, what is it? It's, you know, it's 35, 40 years. Um, the the most significant changes occur when uh, timber supply changes. Mills are only as good and as big and as efficient as the timber supply that they can get access to. And so what we've seen over time is there was an abundance of timber supply. And there, were, there was more timber than, than mills. 
then if you recall back in about the late 1970s, particularly going into the 1980s, 1990s, early 2000s, we had a mountain pine beetle infestation in British Columbia. This is really a product of, we had a lot of forests that were getting older than they normally would do, um, but we're very good at controlling fires and putting them out. And so those forests just kept getting older. Um, then they start becoming susceptible to disease when they get to a certain age, particularly lodgepole pine, which is the mainstay of the interior uh, industry. Uh, once you get lodgepole pine starts getting into that, 90 years, 110 years in that kind of period, it starts to weaken and, and does become susceptible to uh, um, to natural occurrences. And that's often decay, beetles, uh, mountain pine beetle in this case, um, infestations. Then the lightning strike, the big forest fire, and you go through the cycle again. And that's how nature controls itself. Um, as I said, we interfered by, and for a very good reason, putting out forest fires. Uh, people didn't find that acceptable uh, to have uh, a forest all burning up every summer and have valleys uh, socked in with smoke. And so we had a very aggressive uh, firefighting policy. But what that did mean was those forests became more and more susceptible to things like uh, beetle infestations. And so mountain pine beetle had a huge impact in the forests across uh, the province. The, the province at that time made a decision to increase harvest levels. So there, there's an independent position in BC, which many people aren't aware of. And that's the chief forester of the province, who is independent in government, works for the Ministry of Forest Lands and Natural Resource Operations but uh, cannot be interfered with by government. And that position looks at what's the land base uh, growing, uh, what's currently uh, in mature inventory uh, that's available for harvesting, uh, what are all the other uses um, of that land base, um, whether it's fish, wildlife, water, uh, so any kind of recreational use, uh, First Nation interests, all those kind of things get put into the, the calculation. And then that spits out a number that says this is what is sustainable on a long-term basis. And by law in BC, they can go a bit above that if they need to, but then at, by law, they have to come back down and get back to a sustainable level going forward. But during the mountain pine beetle recovery stage, get that wood out while it still has value in it, put it through mills, turn it into lumber, and get that lumber out to markets. We made a, a decision to over-harvest, knowing that at some point there was going to be a day of reckoning and that harvest level will come back down. We're in that day of reckoning now. So what you're seeing is with mill closures, it's, it's a, an, an alignment of the available timber supply with mill capacity. There was too much mill capacity, and that made mills inefficient. And so what you've seen is a lot of harsh decisions being made over the last five years. Even though we knew it was coming, it, it still comes as a shock. And that uh, mills finally decide we, we just don't have the timber supply. Uh, we're going to have to make these two mills over here more efficient, but it's got to be at the expense of that one mill over somewhere else. And some people said to us, well, the Gorman Group hasn't had any mill closures. And they go, well, actually, that, that's not strictly true. What we've done is we've actually gone from three shift operations to two shift operations at all of our operations in the last five years. So in a sense, you could say we've actually shut down a mill. We've just done it through people retiring, uh, through um, that temporary work uh, has gone away and the permanent employees are still here. But really, we're operating uh, on a two-shift basis now versus three, but very much driven by uh, the available timber supply. 
And so there was actually a study done uh, back in 2010 by a consultant um, that was hired by the province to look at exactly what I just identified, um, aligning timber supply with available um, mill capacity and giving a prediction on what uh, the consultant thought uh, we would, was going to change the industry over time. And he identified at that point, and this is 2010, that there'd be 16 interior operations, whether that was sawmills, near plants, plywood operations, uh, would shut down by 2019. Well, he pretty well nailed it. And that is really the, the number of operations that we've seen uh, closed down in that time. What is telling is that um, he just updated his report, and in May of 2019, um, he identified that he believes there's still another 13 mills that are going to have to shut down in the province. Now, that will be um, scattered across the province, uh, mainly in the interior. Um, there, there may be some impact on the coast, but the, the coast is a, a different animal in a way. Um, they didn't have an infestation like mountain pine beetle, their harvest level will stay fairly static. But where you're going to see the biggest impact will be central and northern BC, because that was where the largest, uh, you know, most significant impact on timber supply has been due to the beetle. Nick, that doesn't sound like a um, an issue that changes itself quickly. No, and I think that's why some people will say, well, this has caught us off guard. And my response is, we knew it was coming. In fact, we as a company started to prepare for it five, six years ago by saying we're going to go from three shifts to two shifts and we'll learn how to do that. Um, I think mills, a lot of it goes back to this, the importance of the natural resource industry to this country. Um, many of the mills are the, the economic driver in the communities that they're in. And it's very difficult to just shut a mill down, knowing the impact it has on that community. And so I think mills tend to fight and scratch and scrape and try to keep going um, for as long as they can. And then there comes a point where all of a sudden the markets go against you or whatever else it might be. Um, the cost of logs getting into a mill because they're a significant part of our overall operating costs. Uh, and all of a sudden, it's just not economical. And then a decision comes down and people go, well, where did that come from? That blindsided us. And my response usually is, well, you shouldn't have. I mean, it's just that now a number of things have come together, which, is mean, which means that the mill closures are happening in a shorter period of time than what we should have anticipated. But the fact is, we all knew that at some point there was going to be a rationalizing of, uh, of mills in the province, and that's what we're living through right now. But I think, you know, there's a good news story coming out the other side of it. I think that the rebalanced industry is going to be much stronger once we've got that uh, alignment correct. That was going to be my next question. What does the future of, of forestry look like for British Columbia? And, and you know, if somebody's looking to get into that, as, as you did as a young man or a young woman, what, what should they be looking at? Yeah, well, one of the things, uh, my mind's kind of bouncing around here, but just when you ask the question, it, it triggered a memory of a number of years ago, I was sitting at a dinner with a, um, a forester from Sweden, and he was uh, he was head of uh, the Swedish Forestry Association, and uh, I was saying to him, you know, people always compare BC to Sweden, we always hear that you guys do everything so much better than we do. Um, is that the case? You've just gone through BC, you've, you've visited all these sites and you've compared our practices and you've gone through our mills 
And he said, you know, there's more similarities than differences. Uh, he says, you're getting a lot of flack right now over clear cutting. And he said, well, I can tell you right now in Sweden, we have to clear cut by law. And uh, because that's the best way of regenerating the ground in a, another new crop of trees uh, that are going to grow uh, the fastest. And he says, so even if we go in and do a partial cut, our final cut has to be a clear cut before we go in and, uh, and do uh, the, the reforestation. But he said, um, since you asked the question, I'll give you my uh, my three biggest differences that I've noticed here in BC. And he said, you've just gone through, now this was a number of years ago, but we've just gone through a protected area a planning process in the province where we were trying to increase the level of uh, protected areas. And I can't remember what the percentage was at, but we were taking it up to between 12 and 14 percent, um, something like that. I don't remember the exact percent. And he said, uh, that's admirable. Uh, you're going through a process. The communities are all involved in it. Um, and uh, you're getting the feedback as to what people want to see uh, protected. And you're trying to come to that balance. Uh, he said, in Sweden, we don't have the opportunity to do that. Um, we've harvested our areas for centuries. Uh, we don't have a whole lot of protected area. And he said, so you have a privilege, privilege to be able to do that. He said, should it be more than what you've identified as a, a protected target? Um, he said, I'd probably say it could be. But he says, you as a society are going to have to decide what works for you. But he said, that's a big difference between you and Sweden. You have the privilege of doing that. We don't because uh, we've already touched our land base uh, many times over. So the next thing is, is you, you're still going into watersheds for the very first time. So these sort of so-called pristine last watershed uh, protected, uh, never being touched, you know, leave it as it is. And he said, we, we don't have to worry about that in Sweden because, again, we've harvested all our areas over a few hundred years. And so we don't have any of those last pristine watersheds. So he says, you don't. He says, you're having to deal with that emotive uh, argument uh, from communities. He says, we don't have to deal with that. But then he said, this has grabbed my attention and I had to lean forward at this point. He said, this is the biggest difference between Sweden and uh, British Columbia. He said, we have public acceptance for what we do and people understand our industry. And he said, I am mind boggled by the fact that the vast majority of non-forest industry people I talked to in this province knew nothing about your industry and didn't understand the importance of it. And I thought that was pretty significant. Um, I thought it was going to be on um, cost efficiency or the technical equipment we were using. And he said, no, it's public sentiment. Uh, that's the biggest difference. Well, that's so, sorry, go ahead. Well, no, go, go ahead, George. And then I'll, I'll answer the question around why do I feel positive about the future? And I'll, I'll give you an example of why. Do that first, and I'll come back to my question. Okay, one is um, I feel positive because I feel there is recognition now that our costs are out of control here in British Columbia, and people are starting to work with how do we get back to being globally competitive. There's a recent study that indicated that um, out of um, I think it was 29 different jurisdictions around the world, uh, BC had the highest cost of production to get logs into mills. And uh, that you can't do that for too long because it really is a globally competitive business. And, and I'll give you an example of that. Last year, I was in Germany uh, to a, a show called the Ligner Show. This is the largest trade show 
where all the latest and greatest um, scanning, optimization, artificial intelligence, robotics, um, all the latest equipment going into the forest industry around the world. It's only held every two years, and it is huge. It's like the Olympics of a trade show. And while I was there, I thought I'd go over and have a look at uh, some mills in Romania. I'd heard about these very modern mills in that country, but obviously just started to open up. Um, and they've got stable laws there now. Uh, they've got a nice timber supply. And so this this one uh, businessman out of uh, Central Europe or um, Western Europe decided to open up some mills in, in, in Romania. So I went over and had a look at them. And they looked every bit like our mills. Uh, they had the same kind of equipment. Some of it actually was from here, uh, out of Salmon Arm, uh, which is a hotbed for uh, modern sawmilling equipment uh, that gets sent around the world. Uh, some of it was European equipment that we also have within our plant. Uh, they were producing a really nice product. In fact, some of the products they produced went into the same market we went into uh, or go into. Um, in fact, it was interesting talking to their salespeople. We'd say, well, you know, where's this lumber going? They'd say, well, these coast of the U.S. And we'd go, well, which kind of which companies? And they'd name them. And we'd go, oh, well, you know George so-and-so? And they'd go, oh, yeah, we're good friends with George. All of a sudden, I realized, my goodness, they're selling lumber to exactly the same people we're selling lumber to. This really is a globally competitive business. But then I say to them, okay, we've gone through your plant. I see some of your employees. They look every bit like ours. They've got the high-vis vests on. They've got the hard hats on. They've got their steel-toe shoes. They're proud to work for your company. How much does that employee over there earn? And they would say, well, that one there would earn about $10,000 a year. That one there would be about $15,000 a year. And I'd be aligning that with the, our equivalency would be sixty dollars to $70,000 a year or eighty dollars to $90,000 a year with Ben pensions with uh, benefits and so you realize my goodness they've got a huge cost advantage over us so it's critical that we get our costs under control um, here in bc i can't talk too much for the rest of the country because i don't know what the other provinces are like although i do know there are some mills that have operations in bc have operations in alberta and have operations in the southeast u.s in fact i was talking to the ceo of a major public company yesterday and he said we're struggling in bc we're sort of making money in Alberta and they've got a different pricing system for timber but we're making gobs of money down in the US right now and so you realize how do you stay competitive if your costs are so much higher than anyone else's but there seems to be a recognition by government to try and get that under control so why do I feel positive? I feel that one, we're getting that alignment between mill capacity and timber supply um, we're getting our costs hopefully um, in line with that. But it also comes back to the, uh, think back to university days and think back to that old sustainable forestry carbon cycle uh, that we used to uh, see. It was the carbon dioxide being given off going up into the atmosphere. This is all leading to climate change, global warming and everything else. But trees absorb that carbon dioxide. They, they produce oxygen. Um, they produce wood which can be turned into lumber. Um, and a big part of this now, and this is what uh, we're trying to get across to uh, you know, people when we're talking to them as part of the education, is this is a renewable resource um, and it's cheap. It, it takes sun, it goes through this process called photosynthesis, and it captures carbon. And that carbon stays in that product for as long as that product's around. So if that forest dies or burns, then that just goes straight back up into the air. But if it goes into a lumber product and goes into a house, and I think 
from my perspective, wood is very aesthetically beautiful. I mean, it's uh, it's a nice product. Um, it's light. It's strong. It's uh, got good insulation properties. All those sort of things. Um, that carbon is actually held in that uh, that product until the house burns or the house uh, uh, sort of deteriorates and decays. But at the same time, you're reforesting that area, and that new crop of trees is actually starting to uh, to do the same cycle, capture the carbon, and then that's getting ready for being used at some point in the future. So I think forests can give an immense environmental and economic uh, benefit uh, to Canada and the province, and really helps as far as this whole debate and discussion around uh, climate change. Um, will it solve climate change completely? No. But is it, could it be a significant part of it? Absolutely. And so it's an industry that when we talk about green industries, I think we've got one that really can be considered a green industry. A forest of third party certified. Um, BC has one of the largest, uh, so if you look at it on a percentage basis, of forests in BC that are certified by a third party uh, certification um, organization. Um, we would be leaders in the world. And so, again, it's been harvested to a very high standard, um, going into a product that people want, and it's got this green edge to it, which is um, it can help as far as uh, the whole climate change uh, debate. Wow. That's uh, fant fantastic that you, you put it in that perspective. I think that's very useful, Nick, for our listeners. And when you were talking about... Uh, uh, point number three from um, the Swedish forester uh, who, who was talking about public perception, and you've kind of just addressed that. That that was my my segue question. You know, uh, before we turned the mics on for this uh, podcast, we were chatting briefly, and I was saying that Jim and I uh, decided to uh, use this Canadian Market Watch format and, and platform uh, just uh, to, to give a voice to people in the Canadian resource uh, industry. Um, mostly we focused on mining, but we have talked also about oil and gas, and you're the first guest in the, uh, in the forestry sector. But we really do have a a, when I say we, the, the, the Canadian public and certainly the urban British Columbian uh, public uh, take a very dim view of resource development, which is, which is quite mind-boggling given, you know, the wealth that's been created, uh, uh, given the communities that have been built around resource extraction and, and given the role of those two things in the history of developing the country into what it is presently, and the fact that uh, uh, a positive uh, and profitable uh, resource sector with all the subcomponents really do underwrite the Canadian uh, standard of living. They underwrite our health care. They underwrite our our uh, education and transportation systems and all those things we look to government for, uh, the tax base comes from these industries. So a I, I, little bit of my own preamble there, but I, I, I guess what are, what are some of the ways that we can change this perception? Um, I think you've, you've addressed the key one for the forestry industry, 
um, that that really to focus on the green aspect of it and the conservation uh, rather than uh, uh, distribution of, of the carbon component. Uh, but what are some of your other thoughts about uh, how various participants in forestry and mining, in in agriculture, in oil and gas, can actually present these industries in a way that uh, doesn't make us look like villains. Yeah, while you were talking there, George, I was thinking about uh, just recently I was making a presentation to the mayor of Revelstoke, and one of the things I pointed out to him is that, and he recognizes the significance of 300-plus family-supporting jobs uh, at our sawmill, because Revelstoke is a good example of this is a uh, community that is uh, becoming more and more of a um, tourist, uh, you know, for sure central location, whether it's winter activities, summer activities, and so on. And I, I said to him, I said, yeah, but we're here all year round, 12 months of the year. Our employees are the ones that live in the community. They coach the soccer teams. They sit on council. They, uh, they, they participate. The others come and go. You need them. That's good. And we, we need that diversity. But something never to forget is we're the first dollar into the community. That resource dollar is something, it's a product that is made out of a natural resource in your backyard that gets turned into something that then gets sent off to somewhere else in the world where it generates value, which then those dollars then come back and they're into those wages, the benefits, the pensions, uh, the taxes, and everything else that then get worked around this community. And that dollar then goes through that multiplier effect. The dollar super just keeps turning around the community. In fact, for someone like Revelstoke, it's probably more significant than it would be, well, perhaps even here in Kelowna, where we've got a more diverse economy. Uh, there's dollars coming in and out from uh, the surrounding areas. But Revelstoke's, to a certain degree, an isolated community. In fact, it really isn't. During the winter, it gets cut off from the rest of the world, it seems like. But the fact is, is most of the resource industries are that first dollar back into the community generated from something whether it's out of the ground or whether it's uh, in that uh, tree that has captured a bunch of carbon uh, that can then be turned into to something that we all want and need. Um, so I think that's a, a significant part of uh, the, the, the education as well. It's not just the green aspect, it's also the economic aspect. Yeah, George and I have talked quite a bit about most of the, the northern interior cities or towns have been made out of either a mining company or a a forestry company. I mean, otherwise those those towns wouldn't exist. Yeah, well, I, I saw a, a study recently. I think it was PricewaterhouseCoopers. I, I may be wrong on that, but it was, um, you know, the industry isn't the way it was uh, back 50 years ago. Obviously, at one time, uh, we always used to hear stories about 80% of every dollar is generated by the forest industry, whatever it was. It was something very high. We're not at that kind of level anymore, but we're still very significant to uh, the number they gave was there's 140 different communities in BC that depend heavily on the forest industry. And I think if I recall correctly, it was one in 17 BC jobs depend on the forest industry, but it's one in four manufacturing jobs 
And so it goes back to you know the, the, the power of, of manufacturing. But one in four, so 25% of all manufacturing jobs in BC. But one of the, st- uh, the stats that I found interesting was that 21% of all the traffic through the port of Vancouver are forest products. And I thought, well, that's wow. interesting. So wow. this is exports now. And so nearly a quarter of everything that's going through, you know, we'll enjoy going down to the, the waterfront in Vancouver and seeing the uh, tankers and the ships all going in and out laden with products. But to think that just under 25% of all those, uh, all that traffic uh, going out of the port of Vancouver is uh, connected to the forest industry, um, which I think is pretty telling. That's very telling. Wow. What does the future look like? So how do you convince the young people to, to go to school for mining jobs, George, and, and Nick for, for forestry? Like, what is the attraction now when we've been kind of sold this, oh, you got to get a job in tech? Yeah, I would say if you want a job in tech and forestry industry, and I'm sure it's the same with mining, actually isn't a bad business to go into because uh, we really are leaders in, in technology. In fact, I had a, a fellow in talking to me this morning um, who is looking after a lot of our scanning um, in our operations. This is trying to get absolutely every bit of grade and quality out of every number, piece of lumber that goes through. So a machine uh, or a computer and a scanner, so he's got the cameras picking up information uh, and then uh, assimilating all that information and deciding what grade that uh, piece of lumber should have. But all you have to do is, if you're giving away 1% uh, grade uh, over the course of a year, that can add up into just hundreds of thousands, if not in, in, touching into the millions of dollars a year. And so this equipment is fine-tuning by half a percent here, 1% there. But what he was identifying to me this morning is now a lot of the scanning is AI, artificial intelligence. So it's, it's training itself over time to become better and better um, at uh, diagnosing. And he, the example he gave me, he said, we're using scanners and technology now that's very similar to what they're using in hospitals for diagnosing a melanoma. And so you can use artificial intelligence to look at a mole on someone's skin, and it can actually be as accurate, if not more accurate, than having a dermatologist look at that and say, yes, I think this mole is is cancerous. And we're using the same kind of technology now in our sawmills. And so are people going around in in white coats and uh, no? No, they're not. Um, are they still going around uh, looking like they work in mills? Yes. So they've got jeans on. They've got a shirt on. Uh, they've got the high-vis vest on. But they are now bent over looking at computer screens. Uh, they're then going over and fine-tuning scanners, uh, working with the software, uh, working with the engineers, uh, working with the technicians, working with the electricians, working with the millwrights uh, to make this equipment better and better and more efficient. Um, so um, I think that uh, people who still think that it's just uh, a bunch of steel um, ripping away at wood um, need to go through a mill and have a look and see what uh, a modern sawmill looks like today. Um, it's, it's it's a very different beast than it was uh, even 10 years ago. Yeah, two two points on 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 that, uh, uh, Nick, on applications of of technology and the advancement of it in the mineral exploration business. Um, one is my, my own company just uh, completed a drilling job and and before we drilled the property, uh, we did the traditional mapping of it. 
and you know my uh, my first job as a kid was uh, working as the assistant for a, a geologist on mapping traverses and that involved uh, an aluminum clipboard with an air photo and overlaying the air photo was uh, a, a, like a mylar sheet of paper and the fellow had his pencil crayons in his best breast pocket and as he walked around he would he would use the color codes for the various rock types and structures and that um, that's we did that same work just now and a, a guy approaching 65 so a senior veteran guy is not doing it that way everything is on an ipad um, it's especially uh, both hardware and software um, constructed geologic tool uh, that's being used. So that's something we, that you know I've had direct experience with in the last couple of months. And I would say within the last 18 months, I'm sure it's been going on longer than that, but there are more and more uh, professional service providers emerging uh, who will take a database and run it through an AI system. Uh, a friend and colleague of mine is currently involved uh, in discussions with a group of younger geoscientists uh, who actually have a, uh, an operation in some place in northern Mexico uh, where they just take reams and reams and reams, so we're talking truckloads of boxes of old data and scan that data. And then after it's scanned, it, it goes through the system and perhaps new ideas, new models, new concepts are generated from that. So uh, those are two uh, direct experiences for me personally within the last six months uh, where we're seeing this technology come to the fore and certainly that's a way to integrate um, you know uh, a young person's other attraction uh, I'm not sure so much about the oil patch but most of the uh, exploration folks that I know uh, who ended up in the in the mining game and I have a number of me uh, nephews who are foresters uh, working up in the Smithers area. And in, in, in all of those cases, their career choice was in part determined by their love of the outdoors. Absolutely. And, yeah. and, and so, you know, here's these, here's these young folks who are attracted because of their love of the outdoors but are able to take that kind of passion, uh, marry it with an academic and, and uh, practical education and technology, and uh, they are the next generation in the resource. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, when I, you, you brought up your nephews with forestry degrees, they, uh, I, I go down, in fact, this morning, I was down talking to our Williams department, just looking at, because our scales are starting to open up and we're starting to bring logs in again, although obviously things are wet in the bush, so it's, it's very selective about where we can go um, so we don't punch through and uh, you know, get mudded out. 
and causes lots of environmental damage doing that. So we've, this time of year, it's just the tail end of what we call breakup, as you're probably familiar with. And we just, uh, so it's just, it's touch and go as to how much we can bring in right now. But anyway, I, I was chatting with them and just, um, uh, one I talked to, I asked him what he was up to, and he said, oh, I'm working with one of the local First Nation bands because we're going through the consultation and accommodation uh, that's required right now with First Nations, taking your plans to them, identifying what you're doing. I'm asking whether there's any impact on any of their traditional uses and how can we respond to that. And I was thinking, boy, you know, we, we weren't doing that 25 years ago. Uh, that's amazing. This guy, he specializes in that. That's what, he's a forester, and he, so he's done all the layout and development design roads and bridges and he's done all that but now he's got this part of his job off on, on the side of his desk which is working with uh, first nations and he finds it fascinating um, he's got to be as much of a politician and a diplomat as anything else um then i went over to the other side of the room and i was talking to one of our logging supervisors and he was talking about a new logging system that they're wanting to use for steeper slopes because as we Obviously, a lot of the easier areas to harvest have been done, so now we're getting back into the tougher areas. And so he was looking at a different kind of cable yarding system that they could use, and so he was talking about the pros and cons of uh, of that system. Then I went over to the other side of the room, and a fellow was um, communicating with a, a biologist. And uh, so we've got, uh, in one area, um, there's uh, it's a fishery stream, and so it's how do we manage around the fishery stream or protect the fish uh, habitat. And so just in that, literally, in, in two minutes of talking to just three out of the, uh, right now we're, uh, we're restricting how many people can come into the office. Normally you'd have about eight or nine people uh, milling around in that room there before they headed out to the bush. Uh, but today there was just four of them. So out of the three that I talked to, the, what, the only one I didn't talk to was working on the GIS. He was working on the mapping that <laughs> you were just referring to. And so he was doing all the mapping and uh, the technical work around that. And he had his head down and he looked busy. So I wasn't going to interfere with him. But the three I did talk to, very diverse roles and responsibilities, all leading to getting that log uh, into a mill. Um, I don't think the general public would have any notion of uh, that's what's going on. Um, so... I think um, there is an appeal to young people. We just got to get the message out that that's what the job's about today. So we're getting close to about an hour into this. So is there anything else that you'd like to add, Nick, that we haven't touched on that you'd like to share with people and and how you know we can get the message out to people that that forestry is alive and well in British Columbia? Yeah, I think I've probably it's probably all hidden in those, those messages that I've, I've given so far, Jim. I I, I can't. Uh, think off the top of my head um, anything that jumps at me that uh, that I may have missed although you know we, we've bounced around a lot I don't know how you pull this all together uh, but um, hopefully it weaves into something that uh, that you're wanting but I think um, the, the other part of it is is extracting value and this is all about you know, how do you get uh, more value out of that resource now we're always going to need the dimension commodity lumber produces um, there's no doubt about it and I'll give you another example of that I was uh, uh, chatting to um, just, just back before Christmas I was at a, uh, a show in the US and I was talking to the CEO of a major distribution company 
there and he was telling me and I, was, I won't say the name of the company but he said um yeah he said when i go out to my yard he said i can always tell their lumber and i can tell your lumber and i said uh, but we're two very different companies and he goes yeah but i can always tell because they're like oh, i said well because they've got their branding on the end of it or the, the wrap on he goes no 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 he said just looking at lumber himself and i said well why and he says because theirs is the worst looking lumber in the yard and yours is the best looking lumber in the yard and i said ooh that must hurt. He goes, no, actually, it's a compliment to you both. Um, he said, because they are the best at doing what they do. Their job is to produce lowest cost dimension lumber possible. And yours is to produce the highest value appearance grade lumber possible. And he said, so they are, in my mind, and this is his mind, the best at doing what they do, which is dimension lumber at very low cost, at very high volume going through mills. Yours is lower volume going through mills, high cost, but extracting high value. And that's where your margin is. And he says, I believe you're the best at doing that. And he says, so it's a compliment to you both. So you don't want the whole industry to suddenly move away from dimension construction lumber. The fact is, is the world needs it. Um, but what you're going to see more of going forward is more, there's a certain part of a log or a certain log that can best go into a, uh, a different product and a higher value product. And our jobs are to try and figure out where that is. And I, I say that to our employees a lot, is every log has a maximum inherent value in it somewhere, in some product. Your job is to hunt that down. What is it? And then start breaking that log down in a way where we maximize that volume, uh, that value. And so that is through recovery. So the volume is, you know, we're getting maximum lumber out of that log. Obviously, the highest value product is lumber. And then the next would be chips and the next would be sawdust and so on. But you want to make sure you've got absolutely as much lumber coming out as possible. But then the next part is the value. Make sure you're making the right kind of lumber from that log. Because even if you look at a one log and you can say, well, that log's higher value than that log over there. Correct. But then if you look at that one log, there's even parts of that log that have higher value in it than another part of that same log. And so it's break the log down to maximize that value. And then I think something that I've talked to our employees a lot about here is we inherited a culture from the founders of this company. Um, John and Ross Gorman uh, were the two brothers that started it back in 1951 with, with their wives. I should always point that out. And uh, they they created a culture that really encouraged um, this kind of thinking. And it's funny, I'll tell you a story, and you don't have to uh, put this on your tape. <laughs> but um, many years ago, Ross passed away. Um, he uh, he had been 99 now, if he was still alive. So he was, he'd have been 94 when he passed away. Still coming into work. He'd, he'd come in, didn't do a whole lot of you know work as we think of it today. But he he met with people. He talked to people. People love seeing him here. And um, he, uh, one day I was chatting with him, actually we, we were going up to a mill in Rollstoke and uh, I said to him, you know, Ross, did you, did you ever think that your little mill that you started on the side of Highway 97, on the same site back in 1951 would ever grow to what it is today, multiple divisions? And he said, no, he said, I never imagined beyond my wildest dreams that anything like this could ever happen. And I said, well, did you ever have a fear you know, during those years? And he said, yep, I always had a major fear. And I thought, oh, what's this? And he said, I always had a fear that we get found out. And I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, people would realize that John and I really aren't that smart. 
And uh, I said, well, I said, no, you, you, you couldn't be more wrong. I, I said, people go to business school nowadays to figure out how to bring the best out in people. How do you create a culture that encourages people to be the best? And I said to you and your brother, it was a natural instinct. You're farmers. Uh, you knew how to work with people, treat them as equals, get along with them, bring the best out of them. And I said, what that did was um, it created a very entrepreneurial kind of thinking. You gave people long leashes. You trusted them. You treated them with respect, with dignity. And people respond to that. And what they did was they responded in a way where they worked hard, they tried to be innovative and creative, and you encouraged them to be that. And, and so I was actually talking to government recently, and I said, most businesses develop a, um, a culture out of a strategy. So what they'll do is they'll say, okay, this is what we want to do. This is where we're going to go. This is the product we're going to produce. Now, how do we create a culture that's going to support that? And I said to government recently, I said, we, we're the opposite to that. What we did was we inherited a culture from the founders. And what that did was that drove a strategy. And it drove a strategy to chase after value. Two brothers with their wives coming out of a major depression, um, fruit farmers, lost their orchards due to a harsh winter, had to do something else to put food on the table, uh, worked with family members and other people in the community to try and start something just to sort of support them all. And uh, that's what led to where we are today. And so really what we've got today is a culture, a strong culture that drives the strategy to, to go after value and go after specialty products as opposed to what the vast majority of the industry is today, which is, uh, which is going after home building products. Maybe you could touch on that a little bit, Nick, on the, the kind of the, the transition from when most of it was dimension lumber and, and then the rest was kind of wasted or burnt and now we do so much with the wood, like from anything from we're making masks even and all the paper products that come out of it and plywood and chipboard, OSB board and all that. So maybe just touch on some of the products that come from our, from our industry or from the industry of the forestry. Yeah, actually, that, that reminds me of recently I was looking through a uh, an annual report for a major European forest products company. And this is a, uh, a company called Store Enso. And if, if not the largest, they've got to be one of the largest forest products companies in the world, uh, based out of Sweden, I believe. And in their annual report, they had a statement. And uh, it's uh, <coughs> George may not uh, like the statement exactly, uh, but I, I think it's got a good message in it. And it was something along the lines of pretty well everything that's made from a fossil based material today can be made from a tree tomorrow. When you look at a tree, it's so much more than just the lumber. There's a whole load of chemical components um, in that wood um, that can be turned into something else. So you just gave the most obvious ones, which of course is chips, pulp, paper, and, and other products. But there's also, there's, there's um, uh, products that come out of it that can, can actually uh, be very similar in properties to plastics. Um, there, there, there's so many other products that could be made out of uh, um, out of this product we call wood or cellulose. And so, I think over time we're going to. And it goes back to that green message again. This is a tree, you can't stop trees from growing, and they are the most efficient thing out there, taking sunlight. I mean, we all pay for the sunlight and converting it into something that is so much more than lumber. It can be all these other products. So I don't know what was behind the messaging with Store Renso, but the fact that they felt that 
trees tomorrow will be able to make the same kind of products that fossil-based uh, materials can today. And I think there's a, there's a strong message um, in that. Yeah, for sure. George, any final questions from you? Or? No, I, uh, I can't add anything. Uh, Nick, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, and you've certainly been an articulate and enthusiastic spokesman, uh, not only for your industry, but also for uh, uh, the group of people that you work with and what you're doing. So we really appreciate you um, having this conversation with us. Yeah, and I thank you for for giving me the time to to be able to do that. Um, I am passionate about this industry. Uh, I, as you just pointed out, George, I'm very passionate about the people I have working around me. I've got 1,100 of them. They're all. Um, they, I've seen it through this last 10 weeks. Uh, we we were identified as an essential service right up front, which didn't mean you had to work, um, but it meant if you could do it safely then uh, we would like you to because we need uh, lumber to keep being produced. Uh, we need all the byproducts. The pulp mills need the chips to be able to make the things that uh, we're looking for as well for the, for the healthcare providers. I mean, all those kind of messages went out at the beginning. And so we made a decision to, while we still got, because remember the first couple of weeks, no one knew where this was going to go. In fact, I think we had people, even with our own operation, that um, you had extremes. One end of the spectrum, it was everyone's going to die. To the other end of the spectrum, is oh, this is nothing. It's just a flu and, you know, just carry on as business as usual. And we said, no, it's not going to be business as usual, but we are going to continue trying to run the business. We're going to identify as an essential service. Let's show we can do it safely. And uh, we did that. And that doesn't mean it's over yet. We, you know, as I tell people, it could be the wrong sneeze at the wrong time in the wrong place that could start an infection um, that spreads. And so then one of our divisions would be impacted. But if we're sensible and we you know, do this distancing, do the, uh, do the hygiene, do, do all the things that we've been advised, use the apparatus that we've got, the PPEs, and we have face masks on the hard hats so people can bring those down when they're talking to people. Uh, we have barriers up between people in the mills. A lot of them work in booths by themselves, so there's deep cleaning that goes on in those booths after a shift is over, and they're allowed to clean their own booth. Um, so the beginning of the shift, it starts. 10, 15 minutes later, this is time that we would normally be running, but they're allowed to clean their booth during that time to the standards they want it. And so what we've shown is we can um, operate safely. That goes back to the, I've got 1,100 people, and they're, they're all doing it. Um, yeah, have we had some that took time off because they were afraid or uh, they just felt it was safer because they had a, a compromised health system or someone in the family did or whatever else it might have been. And we said, look, we respect that. When you come back, come back in your own time. But when you come back, you will have the same job uh, and you, will, um, you won't lose any seniority or anything like that, regardless of how long this goes on for. Because back then, we thought it would go on pretty much still, but we thought it would go on for years. Um, no one knew. Um, but I had 1,100 employees that pulled in around that and said, yeah, let's, let's give this a try and let's be, let's be really careful and let's show that we can run safely. And so I'm very fortunate that way. That's fantastic. Well, again, we thank you for your time, Nick, and thank you for, for sharing with us. And, and Gorman's been a big part of this community, and uh, we hope that it continues to be a great big part of this community going forward. Yeah, great. Thanks, uh, Jim. appreciate that. And say hi to Nicky for me. I sure will. Okay. Thanks, George. Take care. You, you too. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. 
And that has been another episode of Canadian Market Watch. Thanks for listening. To hear future episodes, please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd like to provide feedback, ask us a question, or be a future guest on the show, please email podcast at canadianmarketwatch.com. You can also connect with the show on Instagram and Facebook at Canadian Market Watch or on Twitter at CDN Market. Join the discussion. This episode has been brought to you by Nowcast, a division of the Now Media Group, and has been produced by the Nomadic Podcaster.